Good morning, everyone. The scripture text that we will be studying this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. This passage can be found on page 491 of the Blue ESV Bibles. Um, if you're wondering where those are, they can be found in the back pocket seat cover in the seat in front of you. Um, please know that those Bibles are not only for you to use during the service, but they're also available for you to take home if you do not have one. Once again, we'll be reading Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, uh, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Lord, prepare our hearts to hear your word. Open our eyes to see the wonder and the beauty and the power of it, Lord. Lord, I pray that this would be a day when persuaded consciences would be stricken And that they would find relief only in the cross of Christ. Not in the slaughter of their conscience. So Lord, we need your help. God, we are our own best PR agents. We love to tell us how good we are. How much better we are than someone else. And so, Lord, we long for you, if necessary, to point your finger at us and say, Thou art the man. And show us, Lord God, 
the path to freedom in your word. God, I ask for myself that you would allow me to have the grace of humility. God, the grace of sensitivity to your spirit and to your word. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to preach the word of God with unveiled glory, that people would see your glory. God, that I'd just be hidden away somewhere and that they would see your glory and that their hearts would be drawn to you, to trust you, to, to desire you, Lord. And this is my prayer. This is what I ask in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it is good to have you here this morning. Um, Before I proceed, I've got one little order of business I've got to take care of. Northridge Life is a church that uh, very highly prizes and recognizes um, church membership. We we think that's a very important thing. It's able for us to know who among us really wants to be pastored, be discipled, who among, amongst us wants to be the hands on deck to really uh, help us build something for God's glory, who is willing to, um, uh, to lead and be led. It just kind of helps us define that thing. And so it's always a real joy to us when someone takes the step of going through the process of becoming a member of our church. So it's kind of dark in that corner, but if, if Josh, you would stand up, would you guys just uh, welcome Josh with your hand clap? He... This week, Josh became our newest member of Northridge Life Church, uh, and um, he, Josh has been hanging around with us for several months. I think it's like January, right? And so um, we are really, we're really grateful to have him on. I know many of you have gotten to know Josh and love him, but uh, he's official, so we just wanted to welcome you, Josh, so thank you very much. And hey, listen, if you are here and you've been kicking the tires for several months like Josh, we need you. We want you to... to uh, to put a ring on our finger. So um, we're going to be having some classes, uh, some new classes for new members in September. Um, we want to get through the summer, and um, uh, so we're going to re- be reminding you of that several times in the next few weeks. But um, if you have made a decision and you're comfortable saying, this is where I think is home, then we want to we want to invite you to take that next step, okay? That's just something for you to think about. So getting back to the message, uh, last week... Um, as we're going through Mark, we saw how Jesus had been preaching and doing miracles around Galilee, and he went to a different step, a different level uh, in, in our message last week, where he took his 12 disciples and he sent them out to preach the message he had been preaching, and more than that, to perform the works that he had been performing. They were casting out demons, they were laying hands on the sick, and they were recovering And because of this, as you can imagine, both Jesus and his disciples had become significantly well-known, not only around the Galilee Basin, but throughout all Judea. Word had spread north to south, east to west. And so when we open up our text today that, that Raven read us, the very first thing we read is King Herod heard of it. He heard of what? Well, what did we just read last week? That the disciples were going out, they were healing and doing miracles. And he said he heard of it for Jesus' name had become known. So Jesus' notoriety 
has been building and building and building and building, and now it's reached to the highest echelons of Judean power. Herod Antipas, who was the, the Roman client ruler of, of uh, Galilee and Perea. Perea uh, Galilee is the north of Israel, and Perea is kind of the, the south and uh, east of the Jordan River. Um, and he has heard of Jesus and his popularity with the crowds. And how many of you know pop, uh, politicians are always interested in who's popular? That, that, is, that is priority number one if you're a, po- a politician. And so he's heard of his popularity and his miracles. And now him and everyone in his court are formulating opinions about Jesus. Now, before we proceed, we need to understand that there are several people in the scriptures, in the New Testament scriptures, that are named Herod. And so we're going to break that down. We're not going to go into the whole thing because it's, it's, a, it's a, a tangled web. But Herod the Great... Um, is the one that is is mentioned in the in the early part of Matthew's gospel. He is the one that several decades before Jesus was born began renovating and kind of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And um, uh, he he also uh, notoriously he ordered the the murder of all the infants in Bethlehem after the wise men had come and said that the king of the Jews had been born and just sheer jealousy he had all them killed. So he was. Was kind of a that that kind of defines the kind of man that Herod the Great was. Well, Herod the Great was only the king over Israel, not in the sense that David or Solomon were the king over Israel. He was only the king over Israel in the sense that Rome let him be. That's what it means to be a client king or a client ruler. He was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He was a useful tool to keep order and to kind of ensure tranquility. Herod wasn't even Jewish. You may or may not have known that. Herod's father was an Edomite, which were traditionally the enemies of the Jews. His his, uh, mother was an Arab princess. And at some point in the history of his line, probably for more political reasons than religious ones, he half-heartedly converted to to, uh, Judaism. Now, Herod the Great, once you understand who Herod the Great was, you can know this. Every other Herod mentioned in the New Testament, there's a few of them, um, are either the son or the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, now, after the death of Herod the Great, are y'all still staying up with me so far? Okay, so after the death of Herod the Great, the Romans divided his territory into four distinct portions among three of his sons and one of his daughters. And these, these new rulers were called tetrarchs, which means the ruler of a quarter or the ruler of a fourth. And so the regions of Galilee and Perea, like I mentioned, were given to Herod Antipas, one of his sons. And, and Herod Antipas is the one who is mentioned in the text we read today. So we know uh, from, from historical writings by, say, Josephus and what we read in the New Testament, that Herod Antipas was a flamboyant and tyrannical man who had kept the peace with a heavy hand. He, he was, he was a no nonsense kind of, you know, don't cross that line kind of guy. And, and he was often an offense 
just a, a stench in the nostrils of the religious Jews, as was his father before him. And, and the, the more religious Jews, like the Pharisees, viewed the entire Herodian dynasty as a judgment of God on their people. They were not happy to be under any authority of the Herodians. So the New Testament, one thing you need to know about the Herods, the New Testament never paints any of the Herods, none of them, in a positive light. In fact, usually when we hear about them, they're self-absorbed, they're bloodthirsty, they're sellouts to their Roman overlords. Now, we have two characters in the story, Raven Redis. And in sharp, distinct contrast to Herod Antipas stands John the Baptist. And all of the history that the scriptures give us about John the Baptist is nothing short of praiseworthy. His ministry, hundreds of years before he was born, his ministry was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Malachi. He was the first person on planet earth to acknowledge the incarnation of Jesus. He's the first one who recognized that Jesus had come. And more interesting, that happened when he was still in his mother's womb. And Jesus was in his mother's womb. You might remember the story. Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist. And, and we read this when, when Mary greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth says this, she says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So John is already, before he's even born, recognizing the Messiah. And and the Bible tells us another place in Luke that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. I wish I could claim that. (laughs) Later in the wilderness... He would be revealed and he would be the first to announce the Messiah's arrival. When many people were coming out to him to be baptized from all over Israel, he would point them to the one, that not to himself, but to the one that was coming after him. And he would say, the one that is coming after me is mightier. He said, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And the apex, the apex of John's ministry comes one day by the Jordan River, John 129, where it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And in the hearing of everyone there, he said this. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John's standing there on the banks of the Jordan. And all of those people... He takes their attention and he points them back to the Old Testament, to the Day of Atonement, to lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb that had been slaughtered so that the people could be free from their sins one more year, that God would just overlook their sins because of the slaughter of this innocent animal. And he says, guys, this is the last one. He will not cover our sin. He will take them away. This is God's perfect lamb. And John faithfully fulfilled his ministry of pointing to the world, or pointing the world to Christ's salvation over and over again. Now, in addition to all of this, when you compare John to Herod Antipas, John was a very, very simple man. He lived in the desert. He wore simple clothes. He ate simple food. How different was he from Herod Antipas? Herod Herod Antipas lived in a palace. He 
so it's surrounded by opulence, and he wore the finest robes. And when word reached Jesus, just so you can see what Jesus' opinion of these two men were, Jesus refers to both of them. He talks about Herod Antipas. He talks about John the Baptist. When word reached Jesus that Herod was trying to have him killed, Jesus referred to him as an old fox. Now, sometimes we think of foxes. We'll say, hey, he's, you know, sly like a fox. He's, we'll think of that as, as a sign of cleverness. That is not what Jesus was saying. He was a Jew, remember. And he was saying, Herod is a braggart. He's a common, unclean, scavenging animal. That's what Jesus' opinion of Herod Antipas was. But when he spoke of John, in Matthew eleven eleven, now, if you've never read this verse, imagine something like this coming about you from the lips of the Christ. He says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. How would you like to have that from the lips of Jesus etched on your tombstone? No one greater. Now, Jesus goes on in that same verse to say, but the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least uh, of the ones in the kingdom that John and I, meaning Jesus, were proclaiming, is greater than he. That's what he said. So, you can see the contrast between John the Baptist and Herod Antipas, and it's highlighted at the beginning of our text today. In just the first three verses, we see that Herod knew John. Like, if you had never read that story before, you see, okay, this John and Herod have some history here. And, and more than that, as you read those first three verses we read today, you see that Herod's conscience is stricken for some reason... Because of John. This foolish leader has a conscience that's been afflicted. It's, it's injured. It's damaged because of John. Now, remember what we talked about right at the beginning. Herod has now heard about Jesus. He's heard about his power. And he's heard about his authority. And all the little position seekers scrambling around his throne are trying to understand, to put into context, these reports, these newswire reports that are coming to them about Jesus. What does this mean? Who is this guy? And some of them suggested to the Tetrarch, they said, you know, I think that might be John the Baptist. Raised again, and that's that's why he has all this power. Now, obviously, when we read that, we know, even though, again, if we hadn't read the verses past it, we know that at the time this conversation was placed, John is dead. And Mark will explain that, obviously. But some of them were saying, no, 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 he's not John. He's a, he's a, oh, a prophet. Like, maybe he's Elijah. The Jews believed Elijah would come before the end of the world. And maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's one of the, a prophet like Elijah. And so they were scrambling to try to do this. But the guys at first that, that suggested to, to Herod that he might be John, that just stuck in Herod's afflicted, his afflicted conscience, his stricken conscience. His haunted memory 
can consider no other options. Uh Uh-uh. This isn't Elijah. This isn't some new prophet showing up on the scene. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, we don't know how long this is after he had beheaded John. But he had tried so hard to forget what had happened. He tried to bury what he had done. But no matter how hard he tried, the ghost of John had found him. And the ghost of John was echoing his guilt back to him in vivid detail over and over and over again. I referenced in my prayer the time when King David committed adultery and murder in one act. And the prophet came to to confront him and he told him this lengthy story, a parable about a man who'd been unjust to, unjust to another man. And, 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 and King David in anger stood from his throne and he said, this man deserves to die. And Nathan the prophet boldly stuck his finger in his face and then the old King James says, thou art the man. And these images, these these ghastly images of John the Baptist are showing up in Herod's dreams now and they're saying, you're the guy. You did this. When Herod says, whom I beheaded, he uses the Greek word ego for I. That, that word I is ego. And, it, and that word is unique in the Greek language because it puts a strong emphasis on the word I. It's, it's like when you're, when you're boasting or, or, or uh, uh, guilty and you're, you're putting emphasis on yourself. And he says, I did it. He's, he, he's putting emphasis on his involvement. It's like he's saying the way he says it, whom I beheaded, I did it, I'm guilty, it was me. John's finger is pointing to him from beyond the grave, accusing him. Edgar Allan Poe's famous short story, The Telltale Heart, tells a a story of a cruel man who gleefully kills another old man just for sport. And after dismembering this man's body and, and, and hiding it under the floorboards, he tries to just make himself at home in the old man's house and pretend like nothing has happened. But something does happen. He's haunted by the muffled sounds of the man's heartbeat from under the floor. Doom, 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 doom. And in the story, they just get louder and louder and louder in his ears until the police show up and he goes mad and confesses his crimes. And this describes what Herod Antipas was experiencing. News of Jesus' appearance and all the things that were happening, his power, uh, it just rocked him. And though John's gospel tells us clearly that John the Baptist performed no miracles, Herod was sure that now this angry, vengeful John had been raised to execute justice on him. He imagined that John's power had increased and could only be used against him. And to Herod, the name of Jesus meant only judgment and retribution. And there are some of you here today 
That someday the name of Jesus will not be a, a, the name you casually sing in a song. That name that is above every other name, that name that is sweeter than any other, will only be a name of judgment and retribution to you. As wicked King Ahab of Israel was so troubled by the holiness of Elijah many centuries before, Herod believed when he heard these reports of Jesus that he must come face to face with John. And he wasn't wrong. Do I believe John was literally a ghost and coming back like some zombie to get him? No. But I'm telling you, all of your sins live until they're drowned under the blood of Christ. And they will come and haunt you until the blood of Christ deals with them once and for all. But see, a stricken conscience, which is where Mark's narrative starts, that doesn't just happen. No one just wakes up one morning with a stricken conscience. It doesn't happen automatically. A stricken conscience is something that is always cultivated. Let me explain. How did King Herod arrive at this awful, tormented place? Well, it all started when John, during his ministry, spoke up publicly and boldly about Herod's immorality. Now, you guys ready for the soap opera of the first century? This is, this is pretty hairy. But Herod had divorced his wife so that, the Herod Antipas had divorced his wife so that he could seduce his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, if you're wondering why Herod Philip, Herod Antipas, Herodias, why their names are all so similar, there's a good reason for that. Because Herodias was both Philip and Antipas' half-niece. What in the Arkansas is this going on right here? John called the relationship out, obviously, for being sinful on many, many levels. And as we read in the text today, he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, this got Herodias into a tizzy. I couldn't find the Greek word for tizzy, but... Got her into a tizzy and she, she got so upset, she put pressure on Herod to arrest John and throw him away in the dungeon at the palace and, and, and forget about him. And Mark tells us that she held a grudge against John. It was just festering and, and, and growing and, and was unchecked. Her desire was actually to see him executed in silence. She would show him. But something happened. This is so amazing. Something happened while Herod held John captive. Verse 20 in the first part of it, we read this. Herod feared John. What on earth does that mean? This prisoner, probably on bread and water, if that, probably beaten, probably mistreated, probably in terrible conditions, has nothing he can do to the king. And yet, Herod feared John. And it tells us why. Because he knew that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. Herod kept John safe. Now, let's kind of break that down. He feared 
John in the, in the sense that he was in awe of John's goodness. Alexander McLaren, the great Bible expositor, said this in, in, in relation to this verse. He said, goodness is awful. The worst men know it when they see it, and they pay it the homage of dread, if not of love. So a, a good man or, or a wicked man will tremble before a good man, but they'll never come to love the goodness within him. And Herod saw that that he was righteous or just. And, and he says that he saw that he was righteous and holy. And you can break that down. Righteous or just in some versions of the Bible means that he saw that in relation to men, in relation to other human beings, he was righteous, he was just, he did what was right, he told the truth, he was honorable. But more than that, he saw that John was holy in relation to God and his commandments. And examining this, Herod could obviously only come to one conclusion. He was nothing like the man he'd imprisoned. And it terrified him. The Holy Spirit probably began to work on him and show him the implications of that reality. Before Herod's conscience was stricken with guilt, what we're reading here, before it was stricken, he had a persuaded conscience. This is, this is what it says in the last half of verse 20. It says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. See, Herod would have conversations with his prisoner, and they would affect him tremendously, potentially for good, for John's benefit. And so we read that he was greatly perplexed. The picture there is that he is in a tug of war. There are things pulling on him on this side, things pulling on him on this side. And he's being yanked back and forth. He's, he is perplexed. On, on one hand were his best thinking, his education, his, his smarts, his rights as a tetrarch. He was someone with appearances to keep up. But on the other hand, this man, beaten man in his dungeon, is talking to him about forgiveness and talking to him about freedom. And he puts it forth to, to, to Herod, lays it at his feet as an alternative to all this other stuff. So Herod's just pulled one way and the other. And the Bible says he heard him gladly. Would you just stop for a minute and consider the implications of that? He heard him gladly. He's listening to this preacher in prison. And maybe Herod decided to try to do better. To clean up his act. Maybe just make some changes. To curb his lustful appetites. To contemplate religion a little bit more. To give generously to charity every once in a while. To pardon some criminals. Perhaps he made... A real effort towards self-improvement, even though, you know, he didn't want to radicalize or anything. I mean, he wanted to be a good neighbor, but he just didn't want to be a fanatic. I wonder if we had a moment of raw honesty, how many of us can relate to that? You show up to church every single week. And sometimes in an unguarded moment, you might feel inspired. You might even feel convicted. 
as the Word of God is preached, but man, you really don't want to change anything, or especially not everything. And see, in that, we're just way too much like Herod. See, our consciences are persuaded, but they're never resolved. Most people come to church like they're coming to one of those seminars where they try to sell you a timeshare. There's some benefits. You get a free weekend in the mountains. You know, you maybe get a nice buffet. But no one's buying the timeshare. No one's laying down the money and giving the investment necessary to buy in. So we'll associate with religious things. We'll give lip service to religious ideals, especially if they kind of line up with our politics. But we won't give up everything to follow Christ. See, what we're doing, if we're honest with ourselves, is just like Herod, we like to keep the gospel locked up under our control so we can benefit from it when we like But we will not let the gospel arrest us. We won't let it control us. We won't let it bring us into submission. Jesus points his holy finger at us. And he says in Luke 14, 33, So therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Some of us are going to get to heaven expecting to just stroll right in. And God's going to say, hold on, let me check your pockets. What was yours as opposed to what was his? What do you say belongs to you And what do you reserve to him? You just got him under a lock. You're not his slave. He's in your prison. So the house of cards that represented Herod's conscience came crashing down on his birthday. He was an important man. What do important men do? They throw themselves epic birthday parties. And so the who's who of his dominion were in attendance. There were rulers there, other rulers. There were military leaders. There were wealthy landowners in his dominion. And I'm telling you, the food was great. And the gifts they brought were extravagant. And the wine flowed freely. But we read that as a centerpiece of the party, as the entertainment, Herodias, very craftily arranged... For her own teenage daughter, Herod's own grandniece, to dance in an erotic, sexually charged manner for Herod and all of his slobbering, perverted guests. Let me tell you something. She made quite the impression. And so, after watching this display... This awful display of, of his own niece, the, the, the daughter of his wife, Herod, in an incestuous, drunken, 
lustful stupor decides this is the time to show off for his guests. So he calls the girl over. He's going to give her a lavish gift. Listen, baby. Tell me what it is you want. We are all very impressed. I'm a powerful man, honey. Tell me what it is you want. Lay it it out there. Hey, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to make a solemn oath to God himself. I am going to swear to God that I'll give you whatever you ask. You hear this, fellas? Guys, you listen to this? Are you impressed with me? I swear to God I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. He's not going to withhold it. And so instead of answering him, she scurries out of the room and goes finds Mama. Psalm 1-1 says, Blessed is the man... Blessed is the young girl who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Herodias was wicked. She was a sinner. She scoffed at the holiness of John. There is no blessing to be found in the counsel of of a wicked man or woman. And so Herodias made her evil plan known. Now was the time to take the revenge she had craved for so long. And so the request came from mother to daughter, from daughter to Herod. I want you to give me at once, no delay here, king, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, if you read the the text that Raven read us, you can tell that the daughter was just as sick as the mother because the, the, the mother just said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And in her twisted mind, she added, put it on a platter. Let's have some sport with this holy man. Let's make a mockery of him. And verse 26 is where the, the house of cards I spoke of falls. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but... Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. See, Herod's conscience had once been persuaded, but it had never been fully resolved. And now, Herod is left with a violated conscience. Whatever boundaries, he said, I will never cross those boundaries. I'll keep John, but I won't kill him. Those boundaries were now flooded by a sea of regret. He violated his conscience because of two competing influences. One, his guests, or one and two, his guests and his oath. He feared that, that he would lose face with his friends by refusing his murderous wives after, after his boasts and his brags in front of them. But he also feared breaking a solemn vow, not realizing that it was better Not to keep a rash vow. Is that a sin? You bet it is. But if the vow itself is sinful, it's better not to keep a rash vow than it is to use that oath to justify a horrendous sin. How often, 
Has the opinion of others led us to compromise our values, to deny the truth, to violate our conscience? How often have we pursued a sinful course at home or at work or at school because we've carelessly given our word, we promise to do things, give things, or participate in things that betray God? A violated conscience led to a stricken conscience in Herod, as we saw at the beginning. Try as hard as he could, he couldn't shake the sense or the memory of the guilt of compliance with his evil wife, Herodias. i tell you something about your conscience. Your conscience is easily scarred. Easily scarred. And it is one of the most hard-to-heal parts of us. And we should never casually dismiss it. Because doing so, as we see with Herod, has severe consequences for us. Let me prove it. Where did Herod Antipas go from here? See, the story begins with him hearing of Jesus and fearing Jesus superstitiously, thinking he's a resurrected John the Baptist. But did his fear of Christ, we talk often about the fear of God, did his fear of Christ <coughs> excuse me, result in anything good? Well, in the entire four Gospels, we only have one more story in the timeline about Herod Antipas. It's in Luke's Gospel. Jesus has been standing before Pilate, and Pilate discovers that Jesus is from where? From Galilee. So he sends him to Herod. He's under Herod's jurisdiction. And in Luke 23, 7, we read these words. When Pilate learned that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction... He sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. We've heard that before, haven't we? Heard him gladly. He is very glad, but watch, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes, stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers, watch this, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in a splendid, in splendid clothing, again to mock him, he sent him back to Pilate. Now what are we seeing there? Just shortly before, this man is trembling in his sandals because of the reports of Jesus. He could have taken that opportunity to repent, to mend his ways, to own up to his sin. But at the trial of Jesus, what we actually see is that Herod now does not have a stricken or afflicted conscience. Herod has a dead conscience. Having forgotten the impact of John's testimony and his own fear of who Jesus might be, Herod treated Jesus like a common party magician. He just wanted to see a sign from something. Do something for me, Jesus. And we're told that he mocked him and he treated him with contempt. Gone was the conscience that once, under the ministry of John the Baptist, could be persuaded. Gone is the man who would listen to holy words gladly. Gone is the man that wrestled with divine teachings, perplexed by them. Gone is the man who recognizes another who is holy and righteous. 
So no matter how persuaded your conscience may seem, if it is not resolved to the point of obedience and submission by the power and grace of God, beholden to the Word of God, you will eventually violate that conscience. And a violated conscience will eventually be stricken and overwhelmed with memories of your guilt and your shame and something, a sight, a sound, a smell, a memory, a dream will remind you of your guilt. And the only way for a natural man or natural woman to deal with a stricken conscience is to suppress it until it dies. You take the pillow of your justifications and you smother your conscience under that pillow. More sin, more justification, more denial, more hardening of your heart until you get your wish and you feel nothing. Everybody in a good mood this morning? Because I love you, can I tell you a far better way to deal with an afflicted conscience? A violated conscience, a stricken conscience? Because here's the secret. Here's the rabbit that we pull out of our hat at the end of the message. Every one of us, at some point and on some level, has had an afflicted, stricken, violated conscience. There's not one of us that can can fold our arms and look around at the rest of the guilty suckers in the seats. We are all guilty before God. And there's only one, if you don't want to just kill your conscience to get it to shut up, there's only one better way to deal with a violated, stricken conscience. And that is to come to Christ. It's what Herod should have done. Come to Christ. Confess it all. Throw away your idolatry of your image, your status, your reputation, and confess it all. Don't make excuses. Don't justify anything. Because if you do, if you come to Christ, you will only find Him to be a fountain of grace. You will only find Him to be a river of forgiveness. And no matter how long you have kept away from home with your head hung in shame, you will find Him to be a Father who welcomes you home. In this room right now, a 100% of us have violated our conscience. But some of us, thank God, some of us have turned to Christ. For the rest of you, may I plead, won't you turn to Christ today and silence the ghost of the inner accuser and find real freedom? Would you stand with me?
Heavenly Father, we're plagued and afflicted today by memories, by voices, by thoughts, by bony skeletal fingers pointing in our faces and saying, you're the man, you're the woman, you did it. And God, we've all been tempted to take that pillow of our own self-righteousness and justification and just smother the life out of that conscience until we can hear nothing, feel nothing. But I'm going to ask something this morning, God, in every single one of us, that you would revive our conscience. Lord, I pray that as we pray right now in the end of this service, that you would you would stir, that you would rouse guilty memories, guilty thoughts that have never been dealt with, only suppressed. Help us to hear that echoing ghostly voice one more time, Lord God. Help us to remember. Not so we can drown in a sea of depression and guilt, but so that we can say, Lord, this is all I've got. And so, God, I'm bringing it to you because I can't do anything with it. I'm bringing it to you because I need freedom. I'm bringing it to you because I need forgiveness. I'm bringing it to you because I need cleansed. Lord, will you help us? Will you take us by the hand and infuse into us your courage to deal with those things that we'd rather deny? To run towards those things we'd rather flee? Help us, Jesus. And God, meet us at your cross. Meet us with the free-flowing grace that cleanses a man's conscience, that cleanses a woman's conscience, that cleanses a child's conscience. Meet us with that grace, Lord God. Help us to rejoice that though we were once dead, now we're alive. Though that we were once afflicted, now we've been healed. God, help us. Lord, do not let us pull out our self-righteous pillow and start to smother whatever we're feeling right now, God. Let this be a moment for us where we look and say, this is when the Lord said to me, you're free, you're healed, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. Help us, Lord, to look to you. We're about to sing our praise response song, but I just want to tell you, we're in a minute. I know this is a pretty heavy message, and in a minute, um, Ginger and I are going to be, after the service is completely done, we're going to be up here at the stage, and we would love to pray with you. Um, if there's anything we can pray with you about or just talk to you, if you need someone to talk to about something maybe the Lord is doing in you. But, man, if I could encourage you so much, even if you just need to say, call me this week, text me this week, whatever, um, but I would encourage you not to stop letting the Holy Spirit deal with this because his goal is not your shame. Do you hear me? Anybody hear me today? His goal is not your shame. His goal is your freedom. Wow, what a, what a great blessing it is every week to 
to take of this bread and this cup and, and renew our covenant and remember that uh, the blood of Jesus and his broken body is a pledge for us of what? It's a pledge of us of a clean conscience, that we don't have to be afflicted, we don't have to be tormented by our conscience because Jesus has rolled away the, the overwhelming weight of our guilt. Can somebody say amen? Amen. amen. So we're going to invite you to come forward and receive these elements and then just take them back to your seat and uh, we will receive them together. You're welcome to come. The Apostle Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now pause for a moment and give thanks for what he's done to free your conscience. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your grace that washes us and cleanses us, Lord. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that makes us new. Thank you for your broken body that, that was wounded for our transgressions. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Make us holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read you this benediction from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.